Open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Raise your hand if you don't have a copy of the sermon notes for today's message, and Brother Nolan will get you a copy. Hebrews chapter 1, and we are particularly going to be looking at the second half of verse number 2 as we are still unpacking what is called the prologue, the the, the very first three verses of this blessed, Christ-exalting message to the early church. Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to look together at verses 1 through 3 as I read. Hear the word of the Lord. God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake and time pass unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things, by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. As you see in your sermon notes, today we are going to begin to unpack the universal lordship of Jesus. By the word universal, we are purposefully indicating that His Lordship is without limits. It is without boundaries. Is it expansive over all things? We are going to be looking at this beginning in the last half of verse number 2 all the way to the end of number 3. That's what the last half of this prologue is largely dealing with. And I want to say, as part of my introduction... In reflection of reading these very Christ-exalting, Christ-magnifying verses, 1 through 3, I'm very well aware that there's two types of people in the world. There are those who will read those verses, and they will say to themselves, Yes, with my head, I understand the claims of those verses. I intellectually can comprehend what it is saying. But then there's other people who read those verses and with their hearts, with all of their souls, they embrace the truths of those claims. They have been given an effectual heart to understand what the verses are saying and indeed they've seen Jesus in this glorious display of being the heir of all things, the one who has purged him from the sins, the one who has sat down now with complete certainty at the right hand of the Father. And I press the question on anyone who would be listening to this online, anyone who is here today, what is your response to Jesus? What is your response to the claims of these verses? The claims really are rather straightforward, aren't they? They're really rather straight to the point. 
beginning in the latter half of verse number 2. Jesus Christ, the Son, is divine. He is eternal. Creator, sustainer, Lord over all capital letters that exists, both visible and invisible. That's a big claim. That's a monumentous claim about this historical figure named Jesus Christ. But this claim, this theology, you could say, regarding Jesus Christ, it's not unique just to the writer of Hebrews. In fact, this is a common claim throughout all of Christianity. You see it in your notes from Colossians 1, 16 and 17, where the inspired apostle Paul said, By him, referring to Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. And he goes on, you see there in verse 17, and he says, And by him, all things consist. I was telling one of the brethren before church, this claim that's being presented to this early church is perhaps the main pillar of Orthodox Christianity that holds up the entire superstructure. The resurrection has its place. The virgin birth has its place. But Jesus being God, it is the main pillar. It distinctively places the Christian faith apart from all other religions in the world. And so again, what is your response to this claim that the writer of Hebrews is putting forth? Now in order to fully appreciate this concentrated focus upon Jesus' divinity, Jesus' divine crown, His universal lordship in our text today, let us together just briefly recall the historical context and also the audience that this message of Hebrews was addressed to. Remember that it was addressed to an early group of ethnic Jews who had been granted at one point eyes of faith to see and accept the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the claims that are being presented in our text today. A gospel which declared that Jesus was the final fulfillment of all that was communicated under their, under their fathers through the prophets, as we see in verse number 1. It was a gospel in which Jesus during his earthly ministry, with a certain sense of finality, a certain sense of certainty, we saw in verse, the first half of verse number 2, he announced that the promised new covenant in connection with the last days had begun, and particularly was connected to the sacrifice of his own blood. But something was wrong. Something was going on with these early Hebrew Christians. They were feeling pressure from their family. They were feeling pressure from society at large. They were being pressured into compromising this gospel that they had once had accepted, these claims of who Jesus was. And from that, what we can gather from elsewhere in, the, in the, uh, this message to the Hebrews, we understand that even some of them were on the brink of walking away from the faith, abandoning it altogether. And thus the writer of Hebrews, after already in verse 1 and the first half of verse number 2, reminding them that God had brought His progressive revelations, His progressive promises unto an end and unto a completion with His Son. As you see in your notes, today in our text, the writer now begins to point us and these wavering Christians to who exactly the Son is and what he continues to do. That's what we see being unfolded 
in the latter half of verse number 2 and the end of verse 3. Who the Son is and what He does. This has a particular design. Notice in your notes, the design in doing so is that they would stand their ground as firm believers in the gospel and Jesus' lordship. Whenever we get our eyes, our understandings off of Christ, who he is, what he has accomplished, and what he is still doing, we begin to what? Focus on the problem more than the Savior. And so we want to learn, do we not, from the lesson that the writer of Hebrews is employing here by pointing their focus on who Jesus is and what he is continuing to do to help them stand firm in the faith. Well, how are we going to consider our text? I propose to you that we consider it under two headings. You can see it in your sermon notes. We consider, first of all, the Son as the appointed heir. And then we consider the Son's inheritance. The word heir carries with it the idea of someone who has been promised an inheritance, someone who has acquired an inheritance. And so we're going to first look at Jesus as the heir, and then we're going to consider what it is that he has inherited. So our first heading here comes under the uh, thought of son as appointed heir. The son as the appointed heir. Notice with me, first of all, where the writer says that God hath in the last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he, God, hath appointed heir of all things. We see here that the writer is first of all showing us that God is the one who has the right of appointment. He has the power of appointment. It belongs solely to him, that is, to God alone, no one else. No one else has the scepter, Natalie, to hand off to another. Now just for the sake of fixing our attention, focusing our minds on the immense depth of what's being communicated here, Let's remember just who God is. You have it in your notes. It's from our confession of faith. It's just a very concise, but a very um, really expansive definition of who God is. Read along as I explain this one who possesses the power to appoint an heir, the one who has the right to appoint an heir. Our confession of faith in chapter 2, dealing with God in the Trinity says, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence, that's, that is state of being, is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, that is unchangeable, he's fixed, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, 
the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's God. That's God who possesses the power and the right to appoint the heir. There is, in other words, after coming out of that definition, no rogue, rebellious molecules, no rogue, rebellious activities taking place in creation without God's expressed approval or decree. Right? That's what we would get out of that definition. Uh, We see it there jumping out of there um, where it says the aspect of working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and righteous will for His glory. There is no rogue self-appointed heirs. There's no self-appointed saviors. There is no self-appointed Messiah. God and He alone possesses the sole right to appoint His heir, who He will invest the inheritance unto. There is none above God. There is none equal with God. In His being resides all authority, power, and the right to appoint His heir. But, in addition to God's power and right, His possession to appoint an heir. We ought to consider something else we just learned about the eternal God who verse number 2 is talking about appointed an heir. And that is, of course, He is eternal. This aspect clearly emphasizes that there is between the eternal Father and the eternal Son as as His heir a filial relationship. Or to say in another way, Jesus has eternally been in relationship to the eternal Father from eternity past. And this is going to be His rightful heir. God the Father, the eternal possessor of the power and the right of appointment we see here, exercises that right upon His eternal Son by making Him an heir. But there is a connection at this point that we mustn't overlook by amplifying God's right, the sole right as being the possessor of this special appointment of who will be His heir, we mustn't miss it, and it is this, as you see in your notes. The writer is stressing God's right of appointment because it is the central, one of the central themes to the gospel and the covenantal structure of His revelation leading up to the Messiah. That's why He's stressing this aspect of God's appointing an heir. It was core to the gospel all throughout the Bible. God, as we just defined in our definition, thus properly understood, was the only one who possessed the right, but through covenantal progressive progression, he didn't, didn't he always promise there would be a coming uh, Messiah? There would be a coming appointed heir who would do the gospel work that was communicated since Genesis 3.15? You see, this is very important for us to understand because there is a rhetorical device 
that the Holy Spirit's inspiring the writer of Hebrews to employ that they would have been very familiar with. As you see in your notes, here's just one example of this aspect of God being the one, amplifying that God is the one who has the right and the power to appoint and that He's promised an appointment to deliver the Messiah is example in Isaiah 53, 10-12 as you see in your notes. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And here it is. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. You hear the language in this covenantal revelation of the promised heir, of the one who's going to receive an inheritance, the one who God is saying, I'm going to appoint, I'm going to make, I'm going to bring. He says, I'm going to give him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he had poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, there is not one Christian theologian worth his weight that would deny that that is not referring to Jesus Christ the Son. Okay. As Dr. Robert Paul Martin candidly observes, as you have in your notes, these associations may be distant to us somewhat, but to a Jewish reader well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures, they would have been unavoidable. When the writer says, He hath appointed an heir of all things, ding, 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 Flashbulbs going off. Yes, this is what had always been prophesied unto our fathers. An heir, God's heirs. Me me and one of the brethren were talking before church. The only thing was that many of the Jews, apart from God's sovereign spirit opening their eyes, they thought that the heir was going to be some sort of uh, military king, you see. But nonetheless, these early Jewish Christians, they would have caught on very quickly of why this kind of language was being used. Now, while you and I are not ethnically first century Jews who have been converted to Christianity, these insights of God having the right of appointment, having always prophesied He would make an appointment to the Messiah, of a Messiah, these insights to the purposeful use of the phrases anointed, the phrase heir, it ought to still encourage us all the same. Because they reflect for us a continuous and a, and a harmonious witness all through our Bibles that God who had promised to redeem fallen man through His heir has been faithful to His promise. It is a synopsis of, for us of history. It helps us as Christians to stand on this side of the cross and see that everything has been appointed and accomplished as God had promised. As you see in your notes, this faithfulness of God to His covenants is particularly helpful to us 
in the last days in which you and I exist. Us who have experienced many of the new covenant realities, us who are yet still waiting for the not yet consummation. We look and we understand that God is the heir, the rightful, not God is the heir, the heir appointer has indeed appointed an heir and guess what? He's still fulfilling all of his uh, promises. Now, prior to considering what Jesus as the appointed heir received as an inheritance, let us ask a reasonable question as you see in your notes. Was the nature of the son's appointment as an heir, was it based upon or in some way in connection with his eternal relationship as the son to the father? In other words, we want to look into the nature of the son's appointment. The nature of the son's entitlement to this inheritance. Was it only filial, meaning eternally I am the son, in in, in relationship with the eternal father? And of course, by inheritance, what is all yours will be mine. Or rather, is his appointment, is the nature of his appointment as the heir, that which is granted for something the son fulfilled or acquired, according to the eternal covenant that him and the Father agreed to? Or is his appointment, the nature of his appointment as the heir, is it connected with his involvement with creation? As you see in the latter half of verse number 2, whom also he made the worlds. What was it exactly in us trying to ascertain in the nature of why Jesus was appointed the heir? Was it because he was the eternal son? Was it because he fulfilled covenant obligations as Isaiah just prophesied? Or was it just an aspect of his distinguished dignity as creator, uh, a creative agent through who the eternal father brought all things into existence? Right? It's a reasonable question for us as we're probing into the nature of Jesus' appointment as heir. This is a reasonable inquiry for the simple reason that part of our understanding connected with the Greek word here used as heir carries with it two meanings, not just one. A lot of times you and I hear of heir and we think, oh yeah, an heir is someone who's going to receive what their father gives them or a family member, right? But the Greek word here carries with it, yes, that meaning, which is a filial relationship, a filial meaning, one who receives his allotted possession by right of sonship. But this Greek word also carries with it the idea, one who has acquired or come into possession of an inheritance that was allotted to him. And so this is a reasonable inquiry. Some may say, oh, why are you wanting to know this? (laughs) I mean, yeah, of course he's the heir. He's the eternal son. Yeah, but the Greek word carries with it also the idea of him being appointed an heir because of an acquirement of a possession. And now, this is where studying the Bible gets interesting and fun. The answer to this isn't so easy. Namely because it is immediately complicated by the mystery which surrounds Jesus' two natures. Meaning simply... Through the Son's filial relationship unto the Eternal Father, 
That which belongs to the Father, of course, naturally would belong to the eternal Son. And so we could say we could rightfully think that way. However, on the other hand, and especially in light of what follows in verse number 3 of what he does, where he had by himself purged our sins and set down, there's an action, an inquirement of some sort on Jesus' part, the Son's part. What follows in verse number 3, through the Son's obedience and fulfillment of his earthly ministry, it could also rightly be understood of that's why he's appointed with this special privilege of being the heir of all things. Beloved, we would be wise to not wrestle our answer from a vain attempt to somehow divide the Son's filial entitlement as the eternal Son against His acquired entitlement of what he did upon the cross for it, to receive his inheritance. We would be wise not to try to wrestle them apart from one another. As an old Scottish particular Baptist named James Haldane once said, as God, the Lord Jesus had an independent right to the sovereignty of the universe. That's the filial aspect. He was God. He was eternally the Son. But as God manifested in the flesh... And in light of what we will see in Philippians 2, 6-11, James Haldane draws our attention to, we are also taught that as the reward of his obedience unto death, all power in heaven and earth is committed to him. So I think there's some wisdom in what this old preacher, James Haldane, is encouraging us to do. Don't try to separate the two. Uh, no, they're one and the same. And so to help us to see that, as you have in your notes, let's look together at Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Where the inspired Apostle Paul once again instructs us about Jesus, where he says, beginning in verse 6, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We pause. And we see just in these short couple verses, the eternal Son is God, and also his, consent, his condescending down in the form of a man to be obedient even unto death. As we're seeking to uh, understand something of the nature of why he was appointed by the Father as heir of all things. Continuing on, as you have in your notes, in verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. Now that is distinctly connected with what he successfully did and becoming incarnate and suffering the death of the cross. It was through this he was given a name that was above all names. And so that's why it would be a mistake, wouldn't it? To try to separate in some way an understanding of him as heir only being connected with his relationship eternally to the Father. No, it is intimately and more powerfully for you and I connected with his obedience unto the cross. He was highly exalted because he fulfilled the eternal covenant arrangement that him and the Father had agreed to. Going on, 
that at, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of the things in heaven and the things in earth and the things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In light of this passage in particular, there are other ones we could go to. We can be settled in our minds that regarding the nature of the Son's entitlement to the throne as an heir, it is inseparably connected with both His divine crown and His covenantal obedience, isn't it? It's one and the same, Natalie. It's one and the same, Nolan. Jesus' entitlement, His right to heirship from the Father is because He is the eternal Son, He is divine, but also, Brother Mark, what pierces our heart and more preciously, it's because of what He was obedient unto, the cross. This truth, it's intended to elevate our affections for the Son, who as God, we just read it in Philippians, left the glories above to sacrifice His life's blood for sinners. He owed us nothing but condemnation, but instead He rescued us from the just wrath that we deserved. And as recorded in 1 John 3.16, hereby perceive we the love of God because He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. So the nature of His heirship is yes. He is the creator of all things as God. But oh, blessed be the name of Jesus, beloved. He came, A.J., in obedience and He obtained His possession. He obtained His inheritance. Nolan, He wasn't going to let His inheritance go to waste. He wasn't going to let His inheritance not become His own. Now this transition brings us to consider the Son's inheritance. Such a reflection upon the divinity, such a reflection upon the human nature possessed by the Son as the rightful heir, as were necessary to satisfy all the requirements of the new covenant. He had to be both divine and human to die upon the cross. It naturally leads us now to consider what it is that he inherited. Now I suggest that this can be considered, first of all, as you see in your notes, in a general sense or a general inheritance. And then also, as we've already alluded to, especially in light of Philippians chapter 2, his inheritance can be considered in light of his special inheritance, or you could say his prized inheritance. Let's consider then together his general inheritance. What it is that Jesus the Son, the eternal Son of God, appointed as heir of all things. What is it that He inherited? What is it that He, he, he deemed or prized worthy enough, as the inspired Apostle Paul wrote, to leave all the glories of God to come and to die for? Well, His general inheritance, we can say many things about it, couldn't we? I believe that it would, though, be right for us to begin with what we're told in verse 2 regarding His unique role and divine agency in the creation of all the world. This is where our conversation and our thoughts would start regarding the general inheritance of the Son as the heir of all things. 
the Greek word ion for world, as some of your translations have it. The authorized version translates it worlds. It does carry with it the idea of all the created universe, but what's so neat about this word is it's much more than just the created universe. It's much broader, it's much more encompassing than even that. It includes all of eternity, time, forever. It carries with it the idea of an unbroken age. And so his general inheritance is, of course, all of that which is made. But the word specifically utilized here, Audrey, is encompassing the idea that the Son who has been invested with this heirship appointed to him as rightfully God and rightfully in obedience to what he has accomplished in the new covenant, guess what? It's so expansive, it goes beyond the created realm. As you see in your notes, nothing perhaps speaks more clearly toward the divinity and the claim of Jesus as being God and His rightful possession of all that is in existence than this text does today in accompaniment with texts such as Colossians 1, 16-17, John 1, 3-10, and, and 1 Corinthians 8, and 8, verse 6. All of them communicate this idea of this expansive inheritance that the Son, heir of the Father, receives. And so, in this sense, all that is, including even time itself and that which is outside of time, belongs to the Son as an inalienable right of ownership over that which He has created. Some of you may be familiar with this quote. It comes from a Dutch Reformed pastor named Abraham Kuyper lived in the 19th century, mid to later 19th century, and trying to uh, capture this idea of Jesus as God and creator over all that is created and his inalienable right over this general inheritance. I like how he put it. He put it like this. He says, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry. Notice the exclamation point. Mine. It's mine. Of course it is. It is part and parcel of his general inheritance. All that is. We must recognize that in Scripture, there are, of course, times where individuals are promised or given peculiar dominion. Or there are certain individuals that are given even and granted stewardship over creation. But never in an unlimited sense as we understand Christ here as the heir receiving his general inheritance. Nor are these individuals independent of creation. But rather they're within and they're part of a creation. For example, the scriptures record the charge of the first Adam to have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the fowl and of the air and of the cattle and over all earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. We know this from Genesis 1 to 26. And so in that sense, Adam as an individual, he's giving what? Dominion over creation, but not in the sense that uh, Jesus as creator has dominion and stewardship. 
Also in Romans 4.13, just to contrast these created beings and their stewardship over certain parts of creation. We have in Romans 4.13, the inspired Apostle Paul teaching us how that Abraham, quote, would be heir of the world. Oh, but it's not the same type of heir that's being referred to in our text today. And in that context of Romans 4.13, it's talking about Abraham being an heir of the world through his seed, Jesus Christ. While these few instances teach us of unique roles that God designed Adam and Abraham to possess, they nor any other created man stands as the Son, the eternal Son, creator, sustainer, and inheritor over all that exists, do they? Only Jesus, appointed by the Father, has such dominion. Well, how do we apply this? Well, knowing this, every one of us should have reason to pause and to give thanks for Christ, not only for Him and who He is, but also by allowing us to share in, to um, utilize that which belongs exclusively to Him. In other words, we could pause and give thanks to Christ for the very air that we're breathing right now. When you stand back in this text and what it's claiming and, and, and unpacking this meaning of world and, 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 and air and appointment and creator and general inheritance, beloved, it really ought to just make us bow very low and recognize just how glorious and sovereign Christ is. Oh, how little and how limited our view of Jesus is when we think of Him only upon the cross, even though as glorious as it may be. But what the writer of Hebrews is coming out of the gates with here is look at Him as Creator and Sovereign and Dominion-having King. Thank you for the air, O Christ. Nolan, I walked out of the back porch today and I looked at Brownie, our cat, and you know what I actually thought? That cat was created for the purposes of Christ. We give thanks to Him, or at least we ought to, for the clean, warm water that we bathed in this morning. And all of this, as we're seeking to apply it, it offers us um, the application of, 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 of silencing our murmurs. Right? Of quieting our discontentment. As you see in your notes, this correct perspective that all things are created by the Son and as His general inheritance belong to the Son should correct the murmuring heart where it is found and lift up on wings our prayers of thanksgiving for what King Jesus has chosen to bless us with. Oh, the appointed heir of all things, the Son, our Savior. Regarding the general inheritance that the Son as heir um, receives, we mustn't fail to remember that the Scriptures teach us that the Son's general inheritance of all creation has a very specific purpose. Look at your notes again at Colossians 1 verse 6. All things were created by Him, the Son, that is. And notice what it says. And for Him. 
This thought now causes us to consider the overarching purpose of the Son's creation, which He has inherited in a general sense. And that is to bring glory unto Himself through the celebration of His grace upon fallen and sinful humanity. That's the purpose of this general inheritance that He receives. He's going to use it to bring unto Himself glorious celebrative praises for His grace shown upon it when it didn't deserve it. This could be called, as you see in your notes, the Son's prized inheritance. His kingdom, or rather His church. Now let's go back just for a moment to Philippians 2 verse 8. Notice it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Just as a curtain frame frames a window, all of God's, I'm sorry, all of the Son's general inheritance, that is all of creation, it serves as a framework for the Son to unfold His restorative and salvific narrative to man by humbling Himself, we learn here in Philippians, into that which He created and voluntarily limiting Himself so that He could experience physical death. And as you see in your notes, while the previous images, thoughts of the Son's general inheritance are without limits, they are vast they are expansive. Indeed, they are limitless. That's what the word meant, world meant. That from within it, which is renewed by virtue of His triumphant work of reconciliation, is that which is prized by Him above all else. It is what I'm describing as His special inheritance. We know that we are right in considering the church, Christ's kingdom, as the special inheritance. Because the Scriptures refer to the redeemed church as Christ's own bride and Christ's very own body. A description of which can rightly conclude that it then holds in His view of all of that He has inherited a prized and a special place. Consider how Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 describes that the members of the body of Christ are joined to Christ through the salvation that He offers. They are joined to Him in a mystical, spiritual way, called in Scripture's joint heirs with Him, Christ's special inheritance. We are called, or rather Jesus the Son is called, over His church, their head, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. The Bible teaches that this redeemed humanity out of the general inheritance are the physical representation of Christ in the world in, within the general inheritance. The church is the organism described in the Bible through which Jesus manifests His life, His glory to all the world around. How could it not be viewed as his prized possession. Now all of you, if I asked you to pick one thing that you possess that you prize more than anything else, would have at least one thing, right? It may be 
uh, a wife, a husband, you know, father, mother, brother, sister, whatever. Or, you know, you could, you could write it down, right? That's what the church is. That's the special inheritance. That's what it is to Jesus, the Son. The church is described, members of the body of Christ, as those being dwelt by the very Spirit of Christ. The birds don't have the Spirit of Christ. My cows back at home don't have the Spirit of Christ. He grants to his special inheritance that he possessed, that he purchased his own spirit. Beloved, the church, you and I, are Christ's special inheritance. And this is how he sees us. Members of the body of Christ possess a diversity of gifts suited to particular functions in his service as a unit working together to give back unto him as a sense of gratitude for what he has given us. Going on in my notes here, I have 10 different ways, but I'll skip over some of them. We notice that the, in the Bible that the body of Christ will partake in not only his death, but also his resurrection, Colossians 2. 12. Again, distinguishing that between a general inheritance and a special inheritance. Animals will not be resurrected. I'm sorry to those of you who have a favorite pet. Uh, Only humans, redeemed people, are going to be resurrected from the dead. I'm sure I might get some emails about that later, perhaps. Just a joke. Lastly, the members of the body of Christ receive the gift of Christ's righteousness. His own righteousness He gives unto us. And so, beloved, I hope just by looking at all of that, we see that that as part of His inheritance, there is this particular prized possession. And that prized possession, I think, comes out no more clearer than in His high priestly prayer unto the Father of what He had been given in John chapter 17. So I want us to turn together to John chapter 17 as we're coming to the the closing thoughts here of Christ is heir and that which He has inherited. John 17. Okay. So we have here the Son, the eternal Son, right? Coming into, according to Philippians 2, time, space, and history, because unless he condescends down physically, he cannot limit himself in order to shed blood, to secure, to finalize the new covenant, and seal the deal for his special inheritance. Right? And he's getting ready to do that. He's getting ready to go to the cross. And knowing what he is going to be possessing, we have this beautiful prayer in John 17. And just listen to the words, friends. And I, and I hope what it does is it subdues your heart with the love of the Son for His church, for you and for I. He has all things. He has been given a general inheritance of everything. But what in His last hours does He pray for? The church. Father, He says, the hour has come, glorify Thy Son, that the Son also may glorify Thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as has given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. 
I have glorified Thee on the earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest to me, me to do. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. I have manifested Thy name unto the men which Thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they are, and Thou gavest them me, and they have kept My word. Now, they have known that all things whatsoever Thou hast given Me are of Thee. For I have given unto them the words which Thou gavest Me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from Thee, and they have believed that Thou didst send Me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which Thou hast given Me, for they are thine. Oh, friends, we could keep going through this and you hear this beautiful love prayer from Christ, not for the general inheritance, oh, but for that special jewel within it that the Father before the foundations of the world gave and appointed to the heirs the Son. Capture that thought. Meditate on that thought. Dwell on that thought as we are about to approach the Lord's Supper. The Creator of all things outside of time, space, and history, inheriting all things, cares singularly for one thing, His church. His church. Oh yes, we have our enemies. Oh yes, as the hymn says, there's false sons within our pale. But when you see this, I hope it puts your heart and your mind at ease. Amen? We shouldn't be running to the emergency SOS, Jesus come bail me out button all the time, thinking that the church is not going to survive. Church, Jesus has a singular focus, particular concern and care for His church. Not one hair. We read it last week in our closing scripture. Not, he knows the sparrows. Uh, not one sparrow will fall without His decreative knowledge or His voice saying that it will fall. And not one hair of our heads will fall either without Him saying so. In light of this significant truth in which the Scripture teaches us regarding how the church is the Son's prized inheritance, not only these wavering Christians who were thinking of returning to Judaism because of the, the pressure that was being put upon them, would have been brought back from the error of their thinking, how much more too for us today when we reflect upon Jesus in this perspective, in this particular way, would bring us back from the error that He is not concerned with what's going on particularly in our lives. That He particularly is not concerned about a certain situation or threats upon His church. While our own hearts in conclusion can at times lose sight of this truth, we must see in our text today that as God's appointed heir, Jesus has among all things inherited a people. And this is His special people. A people which He chose to die for, that He might receive praise, honor, and glory forevermore. And so as we conclude today's message, recall my introductory thoughts regarding that there's two types of people 
that are going to hear these claims that are being presented. There are those who just read the text and say, okay, I understand the preposition that's being offered here. It says that Jesus is the heir of all things. And then there's going to be those who the Spirit of God has penetrated their hearts with the truth that Jesus loved them so much that He came from heaven to die upon a cross for your sins. Who are you? Which person are you? Do you stand in the king's court and acknowledge that he is the authority and he is the crown, but you're not in his inner court? Are you one who has heard much about the doctrines of Christ and about how he is the one who has the governorship of all that exists upon his shoulders, Isaiah says? Or have you truly been pricked in the heart by His love for you, that all of the sins that you have committed, He left all of that glory and He came and was beaten and mocked and died for the least of your sins. What is your response to the claims of this condescended King of glory and Redeemer? I pray that the Holy Spirit shows your heart the truth. Oh, that yes, He is by being your creator, your rightful um, king. He uh, is, uh, demands obedience as your creator, but yet He is a loving Savior as well. And He has died for your sins. And oh, come and worship Him at His feet for His mercy, His grace, and His love that He has shed upon us as His church. Let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord. We thank You for what we see in the text today of You being, O oh Father, the sole possessor of all power, of all glory. O oh Lord, being in and of Yourself, not dependent upon any of Your creation. And how the one who controls the sole right of Lord granting an appointment as an heir. We see that Jesus, your eternal son, was granted and made this appointment, Lord. Of course, because he was eternally God with you. Oh, but more special as we have recognized several times what he agreed to do and indeed successfully accomplished. And that is, he entered into this created world which He created. And He paid a price that no other man could pay. That is a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of His church. Whosoever will believe, whosoever will believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the claims that we have been presenting here today, shall be saved. Spirit of God, we pray that you would move, that you would today yet, Lord, for those who may hear this online or even yet in this place today, lest we be presumptuous. Oh, I pray that you would show the true Jesus to someone here today. Show us, oh God, how much he has done for us upon the cross 
as we approach the supper, humble us afresh and anew of all what we owe to King Jesus. His blessings are new every morning as we considered how all things are under his dominion. He lets us participate in this creation, breathing his air, drinking his clean water. But oh, in a much more special and spiritual way, we drink from his own righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins. We bless you, Father. We bless you, Son, and O Holy Spirit. For you are, we confess, our triune God, working in harmony to open the hearts and the minds of mankind. We bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.